Josiah Doc Skurlock had a choice to make. He could skin on out of the territory while the getting was still good or risk being put back in chains. Or worse, gunned down like a damn dog in front of his family. Not that Doc Skurlock ever shied away from a fight, mind you. Word added that he had killed men from New Orleans to Texas, even old Mexico, before making his way up north to work for John Chisholm. And even then, folks just kept turning up kilt around him, be they hostile Apache or feisty stock thieves. All the same, Doc had a family to worry about now, little ones to feed and protect. He could no longer afford to ride out reckless as the devil with young Billy Bonnie. Vengeance be damned. Matter of fact, at nearly 31 years of age, Doc had just welcomed a son into this world, his namesake, Josiah Gordon Scurlock Jr. A joyous occasion for any man indeed, but one nonetheless tinged with bitterness given that just two months prior, he and his wife Antonia had laid their daughter, Maria Elena, to rest. No, Doc Scurlock was no stranger to burying the dead, nor to keeping gravediggers in business. Killing had always come easy to a man like him, and death just seemed to follow in his wake even to those whom he loved the most. Doc thought of Texas once more, of a new beginning, a fresh start, someplace where he could lay down his guns and stop looking over his shoulder. Of course, he would need a grub stake, and unfortunately, that meant pulling one last job with Billy the Damn Kid. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. If you're here to learn more about Doc Skurlock, well, you have certainly come to the right place. First, though, just kind of a heads up. This episode does get a little heavy, at least the portion dealing with Skurlock. I normally don't issue warnings like this, but if you're a parent who has had the great misfortune of losing a child, proceed with caution as that is a topic that will be touched on more than once. In all honesty, I would not blame you for skipping this episode altogether. Josiah Skurlock lived a very interesting life for sure. But boy, oh boy, tragedy sure did come a-knockin'. That said, if you're here just for the Doc Skurlock discourse alone and you don't want to hear me blather on about anything else, feel free to skip to around the 20-minute mark. If you're new, hey there, come on in. My name is Josh, and I am the host of this monstrosity. Normally, each and every episode of the Wild West Extravaganza, we delve into just one person or event from the Old West era, but this one's going to be a little different. First off, I am recording completely in the nude. No, uh, kidding. Uh, this is more of a companion piece, sort of an epilogue to the recent series on Billy the Kid. Link in the show notes if you haven't already heard that. We touched on quite a few characters while exploring the life of the kid, and if you're anything like me, you might just be curious as to what happened to all of them after Billy's premature demise. Remember, the Old West didn't just disappear at the turn of the century, and more than one old outlaw or gunman lucked out and made it to the rocking chair. With that in mind, for the next couple of weeks, we will be taking a look at some of the key players in the life of Billy the Kid. Guys like Doc Skurlock, obviously, but other regulators as well. John Middleton, Chavez E. Chavez, Fred Waite, Henry Newton Brown, George, and Frank Coe. We're also going to find out what happened to Billy's partners in crime there at the end. The ones that got arrested with him over at Stinkin' Springs. Billy Wilson, Tom Pickett, and Dave Rudabaugh. And yeah, we're even going to discuss old Pat Garrett. On this episode, however, before we get to Doc, we're going to take a look at the opposition, the guys that Skurlock and the kid were fighting against, find out if them sons of bitches ever did reap that whirlwind, and who to better start off with than old James Joseph Dolan himself. Although Dolan would outlive his nemesis, Billy the Kid, the Irish businessman would have a somewhat bad run of it following the Lincoln County War. 
In just the span of seven years, between 1882 and 1889, James would tragically lose two of his children as well as his wife Betsy. He'd remarry again to a Miss Eva Whitlock, but rumor has it Dolan was prone to abuse when it came to the womenfolk. Little too handsy. Financially, he did okay, at least for a while. Remember, the Dolan faction won the war. As such, James took over control of Tunstall's old ranch and his store there in town. And despite declaring bankruptcy in 1878, Dolan would regain at least a portion of his old power back. He'd go on to become a member of the New Mexico Territorial Senate in 1888 before being appointed as the receiver to the land office. Now, this is not the first time I've had to look up the definition of a receiver. If you listen to the episode I did on Wyatt Earp in Hollywood, you might remember how Wyatt threw down on a federal receiver in October of 1910. Well, according to the internet, a receiver is a court-appointed, impartial person who takes possession of certain specified property to prevent deterioration, dissipation, loss, or other detriments to the party requesting the appointment of a receiver pending the outcome of litigation. Now, I've never been to law school, but I have read quite a few John Grisham novels and watched my fair share of Judge Mathis, so I'm basically a lawyer. And to me, it sounds like Dolan was pretty much just doing like he did back in Lincoln County and taking shit from people who couldn't afford to hang on to it. And this may have been his downfall. Apparently, one of Dolan's receiver buddies skipped town, leaving the accounts about $10,000 light, effectively leaving James holding the bag and liable for all that missing money. Interestingly enough, it's the same amount of money, $10,000, that went missing all them years prior when Murphy and Dolan were fighting with McSween over Emil Fritz's life insurance policy. Never did find out what happened to that money, by the way. Also, just like his mentor, Lawrence Murphy, Jimmy Dolan did like his whiskey of an evening a little too much. He would die on the Feliz Ranch, the property once owned by a man he had murdered, John Tunstall, on February 26, 1898, at just 49 years of age. And according to former regulator Frank Coe, it was the DTs that did him in, a.k.a. Delirium Tremens. Guess nobody ever told Dolan that after a certain point, it's not advisable to be quitting that bottle cold turkey. As for his protege, John Riley, unfortunately, I could not find out much in the way of details. I didn't really mention the man too much in the series, but he was to Dolan what Dolan was to Lawrence Murphy, in addition to also being a gopher between Jesse Evans and the house. Riley was also, allegedly, a murderer. Story goes that he had shot prominent Lincoln County citizen Juan B. Patron in the back after Juan attempted to see Riley brought to justice for murdering some young Hispanic men. Patron, a McSween ally, would survive, only to be assassinated a few years later. As far as I can tell, John Riley never paid for any of his crimes. He'd relocate to Las Cruces following the hostilities, get married, have some kids, move again to Colorado, and then return to New Mexico, where in 1889 he was elected as the assayer of Donna Anna County. Don't really know what an assayer is either, or assayer. I guess it's sort of like an ass whisperer, only louder. Now sometime around 1904, John would move his family back to Colorado and start a hog farm. A legitimate hog farm, not the kind that are often found around military installations. And it's there in Colorado Springs where he would pass away in the year 1914. Next up in this rogues gallery, we got old Billy Campbell. Not a politician or a hog farmer, as far as I know, which may be the man's only redeemable qualities. You may remember Campbell as the Lincoln County newcomer who bullied and then killed Susan McSween's lawyer, Houston Chapman. Billy was arrested and locked up at Fort Stanton, but he ended up escaping and making his way to New Jersey. There, Campbell kept a pretty low profile and earned a modest income as a fruit and vegetable merchant. 
1882, he went into business with fellow vendor Abraham Anderson, and the two began a very lucrative canning venture. So lucrative, in fact, they hired a German chemist to help develop a new method of condensing soup to make the whole thing just even more efficient, and the rest is history. So next time you pop open a can of Campbell's soup, you can think former Lincoln County outlaw Billy Campbell. As with Riley, it does not appear that Billy ever did any serious time in prison, and you can imagine this isn't something that the Campbell Soup Company goes around advertising. Next up, we got John Kinney, the New Mexico outlaw leader. Oh, and by the way, I did make all that stuff up about Campbell Soup. Truth was, Billy Campbell was indeed arrested, and he did escape Fort Stanton, that part was true, uh, but he wouldn't remain a free man for long, or alive, for that matter. Billy ended up killing somebody yet again in Arizona and got himself strung up by a lynch mob in 1882. Still kind of hoping you think of me next time you have a can of tomato soup, though. Okay, back to John Kinney, also known by Young Guns fans as Kinney, you bastard. More of an organized crime boss than a mere outlaw, Kinney would continue his bandit ways following the Lincoln County War, stealing an estimated 10,000 head of cattle in one month alone, according to a newspaper out of Santa Fe. And if you find that number to be unbelievable, yeah, me too. While 10,000 is extremely inflated, it's still true that Kinney and his gang were still in livestock with both hands. Enter in the very compelling and future topic of the Wild West extravaganza, Albert Jennings Fountain. A former soldier, politician, newspaperman, attorney, and all-around badass, Fountain once spent the night under a dead horse after a fight with the Apache with two of their arrows and a bullet lodged in his body. I did mention him in the series on Billy the Kid, but you didn't hear it because I cut that part out. It was getting long enough as it was, and I just didn't feel the need to introduce even more characters into an already complex story. That said, Fountain did play somewhat of a role in the life of Billy the Kid. He was a hard-charging journalist out of Messiah during the time that Billy was riding with Jesse Evans, constantly sticking his neck out and calling for an end to the gang, and when Billy was on trial for Sheriff Brady's murder, it was Fountain, ironically, who was appointed as the kid's defense attorney. And by 1883, the then 45-year-old Albert Jennings Fountain was the commander of the New Mexico Volunteer Militia ordered to put an end to John Kinney, you bastard. While he was not successful in arresting Kinney, Fountain did put enough pressure on the man to not only stop the wholesale rustling that was plaguing New Mexico, but drive the outlaw King West into Arizona, or at least a few miles into Arizona. The awesomely named Shakespeare Guard out of the now ghost town of Shakespeare, New Mexico, then followed Kenny across the border and apprehended the bandit without incident near a place called Ash Springs. That's Ash with a S-H. And when Kenny finally went to trial, Albert Jennings Fountain dusted off his law degree and acted as the state's prosecuting attorney, seeing to it that John Kenny was sentenced to Leavenworth Prison, making them little rocks out of biggins. However, Kenny's conviction was reversed just three years later, and he was released from prison. And believe it or not, John Kenny walked the straight and narrow for the rest of his life. And I'm actually being serious. Uh, there's evidence that he may have served in the Spanish-American War as a civilian quartermaster and scout, he would file for a military pension only to have it rejected, and he did a little prospecting in Arizona before moving to the town of Prescott where he died of Bright's disease in the year 1919. And finally, before we get to Doc Scurlock, we absolutely have to discuss the man of mystery himself, Jesse Evans. Oh boy, here we go. In a lot of ways, Jesse Evans was the nastier version of Billy the Kid. Both of them were deadlier than hell, they both have dubious origins, we don't know Jesse's real name or where he's from, and there's zero authenticated photos of the man despite what you might find online. 
The best we can get is his prison record that states that Jesse was 5 feet 8 inches tall and weighed a little over 150 pounds with gray eyes, light hair, and a fair complexion. Possibly born in the early to mid-1850s, Evans, who some sources claim was half Cherokee, could be found working as a cowhand in New Mexico as early as 1872. By 1875, he's employed by John Chisholm and already showing signs as a competent man with a firearm. Not only would Evans help Chisholm retrieve stolen horses from the Mescalero Reservation, but he also accompanied Chisholm's brother Peitzer to La Boquilla, where they held the entire damn town at gunpoint as they searched for stolen cattle. Ironic, considering Jesse's future occupation a choice. Hell, just a year later, he would be riding with John Kinney as the pair shot up the town of Las Cruces. As discussed in the series on Billy the Kid, Evans went on to form his own gang, the Boys, as they were called, with whom young Antrim rode for a very short period of time, and of course, during the Lincoln County War, Jesse sided with the Dolan faction. And just like John Kinney, Jesse Evans was a 100% certified damn outlaw. Between the years 1875 and 1878, Donna Ana County, New Mexico alone issued 10 separate arrest warrants, five of them on murder charges, for Jesse Evans. And Lincoln County authorities put out an additional five warrants for the man's arrest. Now, Jesse would be placed into custody for Houston Chapman's murder, but as always, he flew the coop. His biggest mistake was then taking his criminal ass on over to Texas and thinking that he could outshoot the by-God Texas Rangers. Men of Company D, Frontier Battalion, got word Jesse and his boys were down Presidio Way, so they rode on over to dole out a little of the Lord's vengeance. They spotted Jesse Evans on July 3rd, 1880, along with five of his men, one of whom was John Selman, the guy who'd go on to kill John Wesley Hardin. By the way, Selman was a very nasty dude in his own right. I'm absolutely doing an episode on this guy in the future. I don't think I mentioned it during the series, but Selman did have his own little gang there in Lincoln County during the war, and they were not nice people to say the least. All right, let's get back to Evans. There was a running gunfight as Jesse and his men rode up a mountainside for cover. The rangers pursued, one of the bandits was killed, as well as a Texas ranger by the name of George R. Bingham. Now, the rangers just kept on advancing until Evans and his crew threw down their guns and started begging for mercy. Sergeant Syker of the Texas Rangers would later write, quote, Had I known Bingham was killed at that time, I should have killed them all. But we had them disarmed before we knew it. Then they prayed for mercy. End of quote. Evans and his crew were sent to Fort Davis and thrown in the pit jail, just a big hole in the ground like the one they used to have back in Lincoln. And believe it or not, Evans even wrote a letter to Billy the Kid. Now, this right here will blow your mind if you're not already familiar with it. Per the August 26, 1880 report of Texas Ranger C.L. Neville, quote, The prisoners are getting restless. I have a letter they wrote to a friend of Evans in New Mexico calling himself Billy Antrim to come to the rescue. And to use their words, he was in a damn tight place, only 14 rangers here at any time, 10 on scout and 4 in camp now and that Antrim and a few of his men could take them out easy, and if he could not do it now to meet him, Evans, on the road to Huntsville as he was certain to go. I understood this man Antrim is a fugitive from somewhere and a noted desperado. If he comes down here, and I expect he will, I'll enlist him for a while and put him in the same mess with Evans and company. End of quote. Now this is very interesting as Billy and Jesse Evans were avowed enemies. They hated each other during the Lincoln County War, and Jesse even advocated killing the kid the last time they met back in Lincoln. It's also worth noting that when Billy came in to testify against Dolan, it was Evans whom he was the most worried about. But then again, birds of a feather, right? It's also kind of fun to think about what if that letter wasn't confiscated. 
Would Billy have come to Jesse Evans' rescue? Would he have been successful? Would it have altered the course of history? We may never know. I don't know why I said may never know. We'll definitely never know. As Evans predicted, he would be sent to Huntsville State Penitentiary, where he arrived on December 1st, 1880, to begin a 10-year sentence. 18 months later, Jesse did what he had always done before. He escaped. According to author Bob Bozbell, Evans went over the wall on May 23rd, 1882, and vanished into history. One of the most popular legends regarding Evans is that he changed his name and moved to Florida where, in 1950, he contacted William B. Morrison and let him know that Billy the Kid was still alive and well in Texas, living under the name Brushy Bill Roberts. I don't know where this rumor started. The guy who Morrison met in Florida, the old guy who allegedly told him about Brushy Bill, was named Joe Hines, but his name was also possibly William Campbell, but his real name was Jesse James, but not that Jesse James. <sighs> Listen, as with every other alleged piece of evidence when it comes to Brushy Bill Roberts, the Jesse Evans in Florida angle forces you to abandon all logic and suspend all disbelief. There is no evidence that Jesse Evans moved to Florida and lived to be an old man, at least none that any credible historians recognize. Also, never forget that both Brushy Bill and this fake Jesse Evans character also supported and backed up that fraudster J. Frank Dalton. I think it's about time we can pretty much lay to rest anything that Morrison ever wrote. Aside from that theory, there are some who think that Evans' real name was Davis. Per author Emerson Huff, in his book Story of an Outlaw, Evans, quote, is said to have been a Texarkana man, and he returned to his home soon after, only to find his wife living with another man and supposing that her first husband was dead. He did not tell the new husband of his presence, but took away with him his boy, whom he now found well-grown. It was stated that he went to Arizona and nothing more is known of him, end quote. Author Eve Bell, who I also mentioned during the series on Billy the Kid, claimed that Evans retired to Texas and lived a quiet life, dying sometime in the 1950s. And there's even a horrible family connection, if you're familiar with that den of vipers. Fact of the matter is, until further evidence is produced, Jesse Evans will remain a mystery. So feel free to go down all the various rabbit holes if you want to. There's plenty of stuff out there. And who knows, maybe you'll be the one to crack the case. If you do, hit me up, josh at wildwestextra.com. Now more on this in just a moment, but this episode of the Wild West Extravaganza is brought to you by me. Yeah, me. Hey, what's up? Not sure if you're familiar, but the Wild West Extravaganza does now have merchandise. Just go on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that merch button up top. You'll find a very wide variety of designs and colors. Everything from t-shirts to coffee mugs, stickers, hoodies, magnets, even got little onesies for your babies. So please check it out. The merchandise link in this episode's show notes or go on over to wildwestextra.com and hit the merch icon up top. All right, back to the episode. By the way, I get the attraction to stories like this with Jesse Evans. I love these what-if stories, you know. Uh, my grandma used to tell me about this old man that lived across the street from her and my granddaddy back when they was first married. This was a long time ago. We're talking the 1920s or 30s. And this guy, their neighbor, was somewhat of a recluse. The only person he allowed inside his home was my grandpa, who claimed that there were just a ton of old newspaper clippings all over the walls, and most of the clippings were reporting on outlaw activities, bank robbery, shit like that. The consensus among my grandparents was that this neighbor was some old West bandit just living out the rest of his days. Now, I never knew my grandpa. He died long before I was born. So it was my mamaw who told me these stories, and 
I got no idea who this guy was or any other details, but I promise you I have played out a million different scenarios in my head, especially when I was a kid. Like, who was he? Who was this old guy? Maybe it was Jesse Evans. So I get it. It's fun to think about. But you gotta have proof if we're actually talking about history. And in the case of Jesse Evans, there ain't none. The dude disappeared. It'd be cool as hell if he lived to be an old man. And he could have. But he could have just as easily gotten stabbed in some saloon and buried in an unmarked grave or just died of the clap somewhere out in the desert. Thankfully, this is not the case with the man of the hour, my friend and yours, Josiah Doc Skurlock. While there is a stretch there where Doc's past gets a little murky, we do have a pretty good idea as to his early life and his actions post-Lincoln County War. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but Josiah Doc Skurlock was a poet, a philosopher, an intellectual, and a hardened killer long before he ever met Billy the Kid. Born in Alabama, I'll try not to hold that against him, in the year 1850, Josiah was too young to fight in the war between the states, but like everybody else of his generation, he nonetheless felt the conflict's effects. Three of his older brothers served, and one of them came home in a pine box. What was left of him, at least. I imagine the remaining two brothers had quite a few stories to tell. Now, Skurlock's daddy was a school teacher and his cousin was a doctor, so Josiah did have the benefit of a better-than-average education. As such, by the time he was 18, Skurlock was down in New Orleans studying medicine with a bright future ahead of him. Ah, but life sometimes has a different idea. And you know what they say about the best laid plans. Sadly, Doc would not graduate. Family legend tells of Josiah falling in love with a beautiful female intern only to have her spurn his advances and marry another man. The heartbroken Skurlock then joined a group bound for Tampico, Mexico, hoping to help treat a yellow fever outbreak. To hear some tell it, Doc stayed in old Mexico for a couple of years before he himself fell ill with what he thought was tuberculosis, causing him to head north to the drier climates of New Mexico and Arizona. But like I said, that's the family story, the one that's been passed down. If you'll remember from the recent series on Billy the Kid, link in the show notes, a federal agent by the name of Azaria Wild was sent to New Mexico to investigate a counterfeit in operation. Agent Wild quickly compiled a dossier of all of Billy Bonnie's pals, Doc included. And according to the federal man, Doc Skurlock had killed both in Louisiana and Texas before fleeing to Mexico. What's more, this is also unproven but often repeated, Skurlock supposedly had both of his front teeth shot out during a gunfight over a game of cards. He and his opponent shucked iron at the same time, and while Doc lost his two front teeth and ended up with a gnarly scar on the back of his neck, his foe lay dead on the ground, and that was that. Apparently, this is why Josiah is seen in photos sporting a long mustache for the rest of his life. Nobody really knows the truth about Doc in Mexico, even the Skurlock family, but thankfully we do have a much more clear picture once Josiah pops up in New Mexico. By the early 1870s, he's employed as a line rider for rancher John Chisholm on his massive Bosque Grande spread, alongside future enemies Frank Baker, Tom Hill, and the aforementioned Jesse Evans. Evidence suggests that Skurlock participated in a few lynchings during this time, as Chisholm hands were encouraged to do, and at least twice Doc nearly lost his hair to the hostiles. One occasion saw Josiah and a fellow cowboy named Hoyt ambushed by a handful of warriors with Hoyt, along with both horses, immediately being cut down. Doc was able to take refuge among the rocks and hold the fighters off for the rest of the day, killing who he thought was their leader in the process. Later that night, Skurlock made his way out on foot, only to return later with help and recover Hoyt's body. Another incident in September of 1873 saw Doc return to camp one evening only to find another partner dead and scalped and missing a nose. 
At one point, Josiah may have participated in a raid against the Mescaleros, a punitive action stemming from the Apache always stealing Mr. Chisholm's horses. And there's at least one story of Scurlock witnessing a little Apache baby getting its head caved in and claiming that it was the most horrible sight he had ever witnessed. Whether it was due to that particular atrocity or the many close encounters with the hostiles, Scurlock called it quits on John Chisholm. The rancher, not happy with Doc's resignation, refused to pony up what money was owed, so Scurlock just took a few of Mr. Chisholm's horses in lieu of a severance package. The two wranglers who went in pursuit of Doc were sent back empty-handed after he explained the situation. I get the feeling they kind of sympathized with him, or at very least reckoned they didn't get paid enough to square up against a man such as Doc Scurlock. Josiah then traveled to Arizona for a spell where he befriended future brother-in-law and fellow regulator Charlie Bowdry. The pair possibly opened up a cheese factory before making their way back to New Mexico, Lincoln County, New Mexico, to be exact, on the Rio Dosa. They were both employed by one Fernando Herrera, Herrera, Doc's soon-to-be father-in-law, and became acquainted with the other young men of the area, guys like Dick Brewer and Ab Saunders and Frank and George Coe. Weren't long before this bunch began working together in hopes of, for lack of better words, regulating the rampant stock thievery in the area. As such, Scurlock and the boys would resort to vigilanteism, even going so far as busting at least one man out of jail there in Lincoln and stringing him up. Doc would eventually lay claim to his own little spread on the Rio Dosa and marry Fernando's daughter, the then 16-year-old Maria Antonia Miguela Herrera. I don't think I'm getting any better rolling than Mars. Anyway, Doc was 28 years old when he got married, and for the most part, things were looking up. Problem is, these old boys were still about half wild, especially Doc's good buddy, Charlie Bowdry. Turns out Charlie and a ne'er-do-well by the name of Frank Freeman got all kinds of drunk one night in Lincoln and began shooting the place up. There was a confrontation with Sheriff Brady, but further violence was avoided as the two inebriates were taken to Fort Stanton. Both Bowdry and Freeman were soon released on bail, and rumors began spreading that they planned to return to Lincoln and take care of Sheriff Brady for good. As such, Brady went on the offense. With a posse of soldiers at his disposal, he caught up with the pair at Bowdry's ranch, along with George Coe and our man himself, Doc Scurlock. There was a fight. Gunfire was exchanged, and while Bowdry was able to escape, Doc and Co. were arrested. This is the incident I alluded to back in Episode 3 on the Billy the Kid series. Link in the show notes. On the ride back to Lincoln, Brady had Co. and Scurlock tied on the same horse together so tightly that George would later liken it to physical torture. Of course, around this time, John Tunstall arrived there in Lincoln County, and Doc began riding with Dick Brewer on occasion to chase after Jesse Evans and his damn horse thieves. Tensions continue to rise there in Lincoln. John Tunstall gets murdered, and Doc aligns himself with the Lincoln County Regulators. He even rises to the rank of captain of the entire bunch. And following the Battle of Lincoln, Scurlock called it quits. He moved his small family to Fort Sumner, and save for a couple of excursions into Texas with some of Mr. Chisholm's borrowed beeves, Doc sank into an honest life. He may have been present in February of 1879 when Billy met with Dolan and Jesse Evans looking to call a truce. And Doc was definitely with a kid later that spring and early summer, as the two were air quotes incarcerated in Lincoln, awaiting Governor Wallace's pardon. And when that pardon never came, they simply rode out of town, Billy to his grave and Doc to Texas. Sometime between October and December of 1879, Scurlock sold off all of his guns, save for an old squirrel rifle, and moved the family to the Texas Panhandle where he took up employment on the LX Ranch, as well as the mail station in the nearby town of Wheeler. 
Not for long, though. Uh, it should be noted that many of the men hunting for the kid over New Mexico way were also working for the LX. One has to wonder if Doc was ever consulted about Billy's whereabouts, or if he just kept his mouth shut. Family legend also states that the kid would visit Doc there in Texas after escaping jail in Lincoln. Like I said, though, Doc wouldn't linger on the LX for long. Whether it was an attempt to outrun his past or just looking to find the best life possible for his family, Josiah Scurlock seemed to always be on the move. By 1881, he was teaching school in the town of Vernon, up there in North Texas, and by 1893, he was plowing his very own cotton farm just south of Fort Worth. And throughout it all, Doc always supplemented his income teaching Spanish. Apparently, he was fluent after spending so much time in the Southwest and being happily married to a smoking hot Caliente Fuego Hispanic lady. Unfortunately, Doc and his wife Antonia knew the gut-wrenching sting of losing a child. And more than once. As previously touched on, their oldest daughter had passed away while the family still resided at Fort Sumner, and they'd lose another, five-year-old Viola, in 1894. Five years later, in 1899, the Scurlock family moved to Granbury, Texas for the better part of a decade before relocating to Maybank, a little over 100 miles to the east, where tragedy would strike yet again. In November of 1912, Doc said adios to Antonia after 38 years of faithful marriage. True to their vows, the couple didn't part until death. Scurlock continued to teach Spanish in Maybank, along with a little bookkeeping, and for possibly the first time ever, at least the first time I could find, Doc was approached by a reporter. The journalist was hoping to interview Scurlock about his various adventures with Billy the Kid, but Doc refused. Said that life was behind him, and besides, he weren't like that no more. The year 1916 saw Doc lose yet another daughter, Lola, and three years later he would move for a final time, this time settling down in Eastland. It was there where Doc operated a confectionery store, which I believe is the old-timey way of saying a candy shop, and he spent an enormous amount of time at the local library. Always a voracious reader, Scurlock couldn't soak up knowledge quick enough. The man was a deep thinker, always questioning the world around him and, like many of us, just looking to help make sense of the chaos. Yes, Doc figured he might find some answers in them books. Accordingly, it was only natural that Doc be admitted into the prestigious Theosophical Society. Now, if you've never heard of this group, don't feel bad. Neither have I. But I looked them up, and they are still around to this day. Other notable intellectuals who became members were Thomas Edison and the poet William Butler Yeats. So I reckon Josiah was in good company. Or maybe it was them who were in good company. You ever think about that, huh? Thomas Edison, you piece of shit. Ah, uh, sorry, I get carried away sometimes. All right, per their website, the Society defines theosophy as derived from Greek roots meaning divine wisdom as a body of knowledge that tells us about our place in the universe and why the world is the way it is. Although it agrees in many respects with scientific theories, it goes past them in addressing unseen realities that we all experience but often don't understand. It answers many questions that people have, such as, why am I here? What is the purpose of the universe? Is there a God? Why does there seem to be injustice and evil in the world? And how can I have a purposeful and meaningful life? Pretty deep stuff for an old cowhand used to dodging bullets and sleeping out in the desert. But then again, Doc was what I like to call the thinking man's outlaw. When Scurlock wasn't pondering life's mysteries, he took up work for the Texas State Highway Department, but finally retired in 1925 at the age of 76, after which he spent most of his time traveling and visiting his children and grandchildren. And on July 25, 1929, 
Less than six months shy of his 80th birthday, Josiah Scarlock was once again reunited with his beloved Antonia. The pair had ten children in total, only six of whom survived their parents, so I suspect it was a very happy homecoming. As I mentioned toward the beginning, Doc dabbled in poetry. I thought about reciting some of his work here. It's really not bad at all. But instead, I'd like to share his words to a grieving child, his own child. In the year 1920, upon learning that his grandson had passed away, Scurlock penned the following to his daughter Linda. I just received a letter from Amy this morning bringing the news of little Wilbur's death. It was a great shock to me, and I fain would say something that would in some measure console you for your great loss, but we all know that words of consolation and sympathy sound very meaningless in a case of this kind. About all that we can say is that it's a trial that we ought to be prepared to meet, for it is the one thing we all must meet sooner or later. It comes to us all, young or old, high or low. When our child is born, we know but one thing as to his future, and that is it must die. Now I believe that whatever is, is best. We can't understand always, but time shows us that all is for the best. What the final outcome of all this is to be, nobody knows. There are and yet will be many guesses, but no one knows. But whatever it may be, you may be assured it will be for the best, for the supreme intelligence that governs the universe makes no mistake. Let me hear from you soon. I will come to see you as soon as I can get off. Be brave and bear your sorrow with fortitude is all that I can advise. Your affectionate Papa. Now I found this very interesting for a myriad of reasons. Firstly, Doc is speaking sincerely not just as a father whose heart is clearly breaking for his grieving daughter, but also as someone who knew firsthand what it's like to lose a child. Someone who knew all too well that the heaviest coffins are those that are the smallest. It also shows that Doc was a bit of a stoic. Much like Marcus Aurelius, Scurlock accepted life as it was, on life's terms, and he learned to live in agreement with nature. He knew full well just how fleeting and oftentimes cheap life can be. I can't prove this, of course, but I suspect Doc was familiar with the Latin phrase, memento mori. Remember, you too shall die. Now, if you'd like to learn more about the life and times of Doc Scurlock, I highly recommend the book Blood on the Saddle by David Garrett and Micah Ferris. Both authors are descendants of Scurlock, and they have a wealth of information to share. Everything from family photos to letters, even Doc's poetry. Very interesting and absolutely worth it if you're a big-time fan of all things Billy the Kid. Link in the show notes for that book. And if you're looking for other books, if you need some book recommendations, once again, wildwestextra.com. Just click that tab up top that says books. And because I would like to end this episode on more of a lighthearted note, let's take a moment to discuss how much of a dork Josiah Doc Scurlock was. This guy was the textbook definition of not judging a book by its cover. There was nothing braggadocious or swaggering about the man, at least not once he left New Mexico, and if you didn't know any better, you'd think Doc was just some goofy-looking old school teacher. There's lots of photos of Scurlock in the book Blood on the Saddle, and in almost every one of them, he's cutting up. He does this little quirky thing where, while everybody else is staring straight ahead at the camera, he's always turning his head to the side or looking up in the air. I'll post some of these photos on my newsletter so you can check them out. Doc has these big ears that stick out, he parts his hair down the middle, and he wears these funny little round glasses and does not appear that he cared for wearing his dentures. And even in the photos where he's semi-serious looking, you can tell he's always kind of on the verge of smiling. He's got this little glint in his eye like you just know he's ready to drop a dad joke. And I love it. I think Doc went through a lot of hardship in his life. He survived Mexico and the Apache and the Lincoln County War by the hair of his nutsack, 
and then suffered the unbelievable loss of losing several children, a wife, and at least one grandchild. But through it all, even towards the end, Scurlock tried to share joy, tried to make other people laugh, and I'm just assuming here, but judging by his background as an educator, I'm next to certain he was still spreading knowledge all the way to the end. And I think that about does it for this episode of the Wild West Extravaganza. Do me a favor and head on over to wildwestextra.com, hit that contact button, shoot me an email. Let me know what's on your mind. While you're there, maybe go ahead and tap that merch button, pick you up a t-shirt or two. All right, next week we are going to do something a little similar and take a look at the other Leaky County regulators. Till then, remember, ashes to ashes and dust to dust. We're all bound for the grave. Act accordingly and try your damnedest to make them around you smile along the way. Adios. Sayer.